This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. <laughs> Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hello. And joining us today is not Rebecca Ford. She remains on maternity leave, but we're so excited that filling in for Rebecca, both on VF.com and now on the podcast, we have Kara Warner. Hi, Kara. Hooray. Hello. Uh, I've been referring to myself as sub-Rebecca, not replacement (laughs) Rebecca. But if you're not Little Goldman listeners, we would never dream of replacing Rebecca entirely. But we feel very lucky to have Kara joining us. Um, Kara, I feel like listeners will get to know you just over the course of recording the show and all of your Oscar hot takes that um, we look forward to you having. Um, I mean, you live in Los Angeles. You've been reporting on this stuff for a super, super, super long time. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself? What's your favorite Oscar contender of the year? Uh, I know we don't play favorites, but just like what's like what's what's your uh, Oscar style this year? That is such a great question. I was trying to say John Wick 4, even though it's not an Oscar <laughs> contender. <laughs> Already bringing a fresh energy to Little Goldman. <laughs> there you go. As a as a lady of the people uh, and out of the box, um, things I, you know, I was really hoping I, I'm supporting the uh, stunt ensemble category and its future. Um, yeah. I am. I am still interested in the Barbie of it all, honestly. Uh, it's I'm so thrilled that it's sustained a life of you know, continuing to get headlines. And I'm kind of pleased at the outrage from the nominations last week. I'm just wondering, you know, where else, where else this story will, will take us? Oh, God, I I feel like I've lived <laughs> 10 lives since we talked about the nominations last week. I think when we were recording, the Hillary Clinton tweet had just come out. It did, um, yeah. Yeah, that's where we were in the cycle. It was breaking. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I, I, Kara, I think you'll get your wish. I don't think we're done talking about Barbie, nor will we be, maybe ever, but certainly at least until the Oscars happen in right? March. And who else might come out in support of Barbie? I mean, where can we go from here? You know, there's a, there's an entire White House. It's staying quiet, suspiciously <laughs> quiet for now. Um, so before we get back to Barbie and the Oscars and everything else, we have a lot of great listener questions to discuss. We did want to check in on the Sundance Film Festival. Richard, last week you were calling in from Sundance to talk about the Oscar nominations, which always feels kind of crazy because you're like bursting to talk about all these new movies. And yet you're you know talking about stuff that came out last summer. Um, but now's the chance. Now you can talk about what you saw. And um, all the rest of us did get to see some Sundance titles not being in Park City. Um, but Richard, we, we should start with you because it did seem like this year's festival, while maybe not having like a past lives, like something that we knew we'd be talking about all year, um, was pretty lively all the same. Yeah, there was some good stuff. I mean, it was the 40th anniversary, so there was a lot of kind of pomp and circumstance around that. And I think maybe the lineup of new films showing 
didn't quite live up to that kind of ceremony. Um, but also, speaking of the Oscar nominations happening during Sundance, the Oscars also now again this year are happening during South by Southwest. And it's like, can we just get this together? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just, that and so you wild. have publicists who are like flying back and forth across the country, like over the course <laughs> of a few days. It's nuts. Um, but anyway, um, I think the big standout for me uh, at the festival was a film called I Saw the TV Glow uh, from Jane mm-hmm. Shunburn, who made We're All Going to the World's Fair, which premiered at Digital Sundance a couple years ago. Um, it's kind of a, it was billed as a horror. I don't think it really is that. Um, but Justice Smith plays a kid in the 90s who becomes obsessed with a TV show, kind of maybe Buffy-esque with some charmed and Mighty Morphin Power Rangers thrown in there. And it get things get darker and stranger, and it's this beautiful, sad metaphor for kind of identity, uh, whether that's trans identity or queerness or you know, sort of something in that spectrum. Um, I think there's a lot to glean from it, depending on what you're bringing to the film. Um, I don't know if for our purposes it's the most awardsy film. I think that would probably go to Jesse Eisenberg's A Real Pain, which has this mm-hmm. huge performance from Kieran Culkin, where he's doing sort of a riff on his Roman Roy persona sort of twitchy and anxious and caustic um but this one is sort of sadder and more of a kind of slacker type person that was a big sale to searchlight for 10 million dollars um and the oscar buzz for him didn't you talk to searchlight people on the ground who were like oh yeah like we were all over that like there was a big like actual war for it well before then i had spoken to some people from a24 and they were like yeah we took a look at that one and we went to this thing but we could already see the searchlight people surrounding them (laughs) so we kind of (laughs) we kind of knew that it was uh not ours to win um yeah they were really into that and i think that that's a good home for that film i wasn't as into it um as everyone else mostly because i saw it kind of after the buzz had happened and i thought that it uh, was a little bit slighter than I was expecting. Um, What's well, a classic col- Sundance thing, right? Is you're yeah. like, oh, everyone's talking about this. And then the hype just gets just high enough that a perfectly nice movie can be overinflated for you. Exactly. I mean, I think that if it's a contender, it's really for Culkin. I guess the question is, do they run him in lead or kind of fudge a supporting thing? Because it's really him and Jesse Eisenberg are the co-leads of the movie. They play cousins traveling around Poland to both kind of get to know each other better as adults, but also to get to know their family history, um, you know, particularly Jewish history in Poland, which, as we know, is pretty grim. Um, so Jennifer Grey's in it. She's good. But anyway, she's um, so good. She's a trip. Well, hang on. Yeah. She's- I, I, I want to hear a lot from Park City, but I feel like we, David and I, at least I don't care. I don't think you saw this one can jump in because that was one of the titles that actually was available um, yep. on the digital platform. So I got to see it, too. And David, you did as well. Yeah, we had a first look at it, too, before uh, it premiered. So I got to speak with Jesse Eisenberg a little bit about the film. Um, my first impression was just like I thought it was a major step up from him uh, for him from his first movie. Uh, when you are finished saving the world, there's some words in there that may not be right. Um, I, it was a it was a movie that even he had admitted to me. He felt like maybe he was in his own head a little bit too much about, and, and the reaction to that movie was very clarifying for him as he got to making the second one. Um, yeah, I, I really responded to it. Um, it reminded me of uh, some international tour groups <laughs> that I've been a part of, and, and Jennifer Grey plays somebody on the tour with them, uh, Kieran Culkin and Jesse Eisenberg, and she really embodies a certain maternal tour companion energy uh, that I appreciated. Um, I thought it was really beautifully filmed and yeah, I I just really bought into the dynamic between these characters and I I was convinced by the way in which he positions it in this larger, you know, more tragic historical context. Um, To me, it it really worked and it didn't, it felt like he did it with an impressively light touch. Yeah, and that one won what the narrative audience award won a prize at screenwriting. Sundance. Screenwriting. screenwriting, yeah, I think the Waldo mm-hmm. Salt Screenwriting Award, which can be a mixed bag, honestly, in the previous years. <laughs> well, um, most Sundays prizes can be a mixed bag. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Richard, I didn't know if there was anything, any other obvious like top of the heap. I feel like I saw the TV glow and a real pain have felt like very obvious standouts to me from a distance. Yeah, I think they were two of the bigger titles for sure. I mean, um, I saw the TV Glow went into the festival already under the auspices of A24, so they didn't they weren't for sale. Um, another big sale was uh, to Amazon slash MGM. Uh, so it would be theatrical and streaming, I guess, uh, was a movie called My Old Ass, which I'll be curious to see if they hold on to that title. Um, I've already gotten a lot of joke mileage out of it. Um, how's your old ass? How's my, how's my old ass? Yeah. Um, 
but it's really great. It's it's from this director, writer, director, Megan Parks, who made a movie called The Fallout a couple years ago that I think was at South by ended up on Max, starring Jenna Ortega about a school shooting. It's a very oh, like sure, yeah. delicate drama. I did not realize it was the same filmmaker. Yeah. It's weird that it's the same person <laughs> who made then made this like really fun teen comedy, but with a sad element to it. I cried a lot at the, toward the end of the movie. Um, but it's really great. Uh, Aubrey Plaza plays the older version of a teenage girl who goes on a mushroom trip and meets her older self um, and kind of gets some some warnings about life to come and uh, is told to appreciate that stuff, you know, the, her family and the stuff around her before she goes off to school because she's mostly spending her summer being a heedless teenager. Anyway, it's really great. Uh, I think that's a good home for the movie. Uh, and I hope that people go see it in theaters because I think it will appeal to teens and grownups alike. I heard a lot of good stuff about that. I was just going to ask Richard, do you think Aubrey is playing the same version of the character she keeps playing? Question mark. Um, I think there, yeah. I mean, I think that we see some of the typical Aubrey Plaza stuff in there, but as the movie goes and you start to realize what is really at stake emotionally in the movie, which I don't want to spoil at all, but like, then we see some variation. It There's one scene that is pretty much straight dramatic that she's Aubrey Plaza is like really like incredible in very subtly. Um, so it's, it shows a good range, I think um, of her, you know, it's funny. She's kind of becoming this like Sundance queen. I mean, between this and Emily, the criminal, and she's just like turn a uh, black bear, not a great movie, but a really mm-hmm. interesting performance. Like, and then you couple that with um, white Lotus and stuff. Like she's just really one of the actors of the moment in a way that I might not have predicted, um, you know, when Parks and Rec first premiered. Kara, you did a first look feature on another sale from the festival. I don't know if like it's a big blockbustery sale, like a real pain, but I'm excited to see the Sue Bird documentary that you wrote about now that it's on Netflix, right? I so appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, not everyone <laughs> is psyched about sports documentaries. Um, I am one of the sports fans, one of the few uh, here. You're, you're filling an important niche on this podcast, whereas we've had none before. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you heard us talk about Marshawn Lynch when he got a Spirit nomination, but it did, did not bring. I pride. did. We heard, we heard about that a little bit. <laughs> yes, I, I was I was quietly giggling to myself. Uh, Marshawn Lynch, what a star! Now on the screen and uh, formerly on the field, but uh, yes. So Sue Bird in the clutch. Um, it's really it's a, just a really lovely, moving portrait of Sue Bird. I mean, she's one of the best basketball players ever to play the game. Um, did incredible groundbreaking work for the WNBA, kind of on and off the court. Um, It's a great portrait of someone that more people should know about. It was a big docs here. Um, There's a movie about Christopher Reeve, um, kind of post-accident, the accident that left him paralyzed and his kind of campaign to both, well, keep living his life, but also maybe get better through stem cell research. Um, It's called Super Slash Man. um, And it sold to Warner Brothers for $15 million, a documentary. That's pretty significant. The the reporting from Variety was that the plan might be to release it under the DC Studios label because of the Superman connection, which I think maybe is a little weird and cynical. They're getting rid of all of their superhero movies, but they're releasing the documentary. Yeah, documentaries, (laughs) sad documentaries (laughs) about horrible injuries. Um, But that was a big deal. And then you had kind of a little bit later in the festival, um, this movie called Will and Harper, uh, which is Will Ferrell and his long, many decades long friend, Harper Steele, who was um, a writer on SNL and then collaborated with Ferrell in some, some of his weirder movies over the years. Um, and then a few years ago, Harper came out as a trans woman, and it's a, the film is about Farrell and and Steele going on this road trip and discussing the transition and how life has changed and what Harper hopes to get from her life now that she's living an out life. And um, it's very populist. It, a lot of the movie feels kind of storyboarded, a lot of planned scenes. Um, but then in between those, there's just really raw, like organic conversation about this, and I think it really invites let's say, people who are not as keyed into the discourse about um, trans issues, uh, invites them into kind of listen and learn, I think, in a very, uh, not to be cynical, like Warner Brothers, but like very commercial way. And I'm, it hasn't sold yet as far as I'm aware, but I think it will be big and I think it will get a huge awards push um, because it is, I dare say, something could function as like an important instructive film for the people who, you know, need to hear it, I guess. I thought that movie was so lovely. And the one thing you can't really plan for that was the reason I was so taken with it is seeing this relationship 
both redefine itself a little bit and and get back to perhaps where it was in a way and the level of comfort between them developing the more they talk about these things. I thought it was uh, at times, yes, it felt like a pretty staged construct, but it was really effective because the intimacy between them was pretty um, undeniable. Um, I would love to shout out my favorite movie from the festival, which was also Please. a documentary, uh, Less Pleasant. Uh, it's called Black Box Diaries. Um, it is a pretty brilliant and really inspiring movie in a lot of ways. It follows a journalist um, who essentially investigates her own sexual assault. Um, she was assaulted by somebody who uh, was, you know, of a certain stature, and it becomes this big deal in Japan uh, where the film is set, and it's just this unbelievable, really rigorous portrait uh, of this woman um, taking these steps. Uh, it's fascinating and enraging and um, really just, it's a stark movie that has stayed with me. It's the kind of movie that, uh, I don't think it is sold. It will be a tougher sell. But, you know, speaking of awards pushes and where the doc branch especially has gone lately, it feels like a movie that could even, like, win because it is that good. Wow. Whereas I wonder if Will and Harper is maybe too populist for yeah. the and, – and celebrity-driven for the doc's branch to give it a nomination. But um, For the American Symphony snubbing doc's branch to bother with. Michael J. Fox and <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, also on the Oscars track, not a documentary – is a film called Exhibiting Forgiveness starring Andre Holland, semi-autobiographical story about an artist kind of struggling with the psychic wounds left uh, on him by his father, who, um, you know, kind of reappears into his life. Um, Anjanou Ellis Taylor plays Andre Holland's mother. Um, Andre Day is his wife. It's really good ensemble cast, but Andre Holland is really the star of it. And um, it's a really incredible performance. And I think that yeah. with the right distributor, um, it could go places. He is so good in that movie. And it's Long like cool overdue. to see him get a lead like that, you know, because <laughs> yeah. like he's so good in everything, but he hasn't had that kind of centerpiece thing before. Yeah, yeah. Long overdue. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. I wanted to go to a listener question on the topic of distributors because I was realizing a lot of titles at this year's Sundance had distributors. And, you know, the A24 films were not available on the platform, which is, you know, why I haven't been able to see things like this. Like um, I saw the TV Glow or A Different Man, which, David, you wrote about. Um, and we had a question from Camden basically asking, uh, do you think festival buzz or a good distributor matters more for films at earlier festivals? Um uh, both 1001 and Past Lives were both big hits at the 2023 Sundance, but Past Lives has gone so much further. Um, I think it's an interesting question because, you know, Neon, A24, Focus, are all, uh, Apple are bringing their movies to these festivals. And a lot of those are some of the more prominent titles I've heard about. Um, but I don't know, Richard, you were on the ground there. Do you notice that difference when you're actually there? I mean, I think the distributor matters a great deal in terms of resources and strategy, you know, I think the problem with a movie like a thousand and one, uh, is that I think it has some shakier elements to it than does past lives. But like a thousand and one was also put out by focus in April in this kind of like no man's land. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was anticipation for past lives. It went to Berlin after it went to Sundance and then it, you know, there were a couple of more months and then it came out in I think May or early June. Um, so there was a more of a build for it, whereas 1001, which won the jury prize at Sundance in its mm -hmm. year, like just kind of didn't, it didn't have the runway or something like that. And you see that happen once in a while. So I think you, the distributors have to be very strategic. But I think all in all, 1001 ended up getting a lot of Spirit Award nominations, like it's still sort of part of the awards conversation. Um, I think it's just a matter of quality, honestly. I mean, a great movie could probably sell to mm -hmm. a tiny distributor and um, never have a you know much life in terms of the stuff we talk about. But like, I think for the most part, the, the cream rises to the top. Yeah, I think also you know release after distributor. I know, like I feel like release mm -hmm. date makes a big difference, you know, along with distributor because I feel like sometimes 
there'll be something that's very buzzy out of a festival and then I forget about it and then I get pitched it six months later and forget. It's just like, well, are people still talking about this movie or, you know, what happened with the release schedule? Like, what do they want to do? Studios want to capitalize on the buzz. But then there's, you know, the outliers, everything everywhere all at once, like with its release date. And I never know. But I, yeah. I definitely always I'm always questioning, like, oh, why'd they choose to release this? Like, why not jump on the buzz? I don't know. I, I yeah. just always think that's interesting. No, for sure. I mean, you also look at like the old platforming strategy that can sometimes work really well for a movie like The Father, where Anthony Hopkins kind of was the last big performance people saw that year and then he won. Mm-hmm. Um, but also you look at the same studio, how they handled A Calm By Your Name, which, you know, did win an Oscar, but like didn't make as much of a dent in the box office people thought it would because they kind of people didn't really know when it was coming out and people had been talking about it for a year by the time they could see it because it premiered a year after or kind of opened wider a year after it premiered at Sundance. So I also think festival choice is interesting because sometimes you see a Sundance movie and you're like, why is this here? <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. why didn't they try to get this into Cannes or or even the fall festivals? I mean, to that end, there's a movie called The Outrun um, with mm-hmm. starring Sears Ronan. And I think it went to Sundance because it is for sale and it's a bigger buyer's market than something than any of the later festivals. But um, that movie, I feel like that would have played so well in like uncertain regard it can and but it kind of got swallowed up at Sundance despite the fact mm-hmm. that it's really good. It I th- it's tricky. I mean, I do think that the the question of which festival is is probably the bigger one here or the one that's sort of unspoken in that question because you know, even if you look at this year's Oscar best picture nominees I think every major festival is represented. Sundance has Past Lives, Telluride has The Holdovers, Toronto has American Fiction, Cannes has three movies, Mm -hmm. uh, which we can talk about separately because that is its own development in the international, um, you know, growth of the Academy. But it it takes a certain quality and also a certain level of competition, whatever you want to call it, to be able to stand out anywhere. Um, And I think Past Lives was able to do do that, leverage that really successfully at Sundance last year, and A24 was really smart to do that. But it's just, it's, it's a bit of a guessing game, and you don't always know what you're up against. And especially at a place like Sundance, where you're a year out from the Oscars, it's unlikely that more than one or two movies are going to go that kind of Oscar distance. So you have to be careful with that. Right. And has anything, was it just Everything Everywhere? I could be misremembering. Has anything come out of South By? Because Everything Everywhere was South By, right? No, that was a real breakthrough for well, South By. Well, Ready Player One won, won a bunch of Oscars, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons is a Best Picture nominee this year, so in my heart, absolutely, it is. <laughs> it all it was in there for a yeah, second, yeah, for something. Yeah, that was big for South by, um, but they're they're not positioning themselves like that anyway. You know, I kind of worried that after Everything Everywhere, that all all of a sudden we'd start seeing like more kind of left of center oddball Best Picture hopefuls premiere there, but um, which would kind of change the tenor. Wait, wasn't Too Leslie a South by entry though? Not best picture. Oh my god! But it was. Oh my, it is was. it really it the same South by as? Yeah, it must have been the same one as, as everything everywhere. Yep, you're hundred percent um, right. Well, Leslie wow. made a bunch of pasta vizul and she catered <laughs> at the festival. But <laughs> you never know, is what we're saying here. It's true. Um, I wanted to highlight one of the movies I did get to see that doesn't have distribution, as far as I know, but it's called Good One. Did um did any of you guys see this one? Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot, too. I, I, afterwards, I said to my friend, I was like, you should have just told me it had Kelly Reichert vibes and I would have watched it a lot sooner. Um, it's a debut feature by this director named India Donaldson. And it's a, it's a very simple story of a teenage girl who's on a, a camping trip with her dad and her dad's friend. Her dad's friend is like super duper divorced and her dad has like remarried a younger woman and has a young child. So she's kind of like witnessing this weird middle aged man dynamic. Um, so you've got James LaGrosse, who's a character actor who's actually been in a bunch of Kelly Record movies um, as her dad and Danny McCarthy as the friend. But uh, Lily Collius, I think is how you say her name. It's like Lily Collins, mm-hmm. but with an A instead of the N. I thought it was a typo in the program. Uh, I know. <laughs> I'm sure other people did. Um, but she's really wonderful. And it kind of reminds me of like Talia Ryder breaking out for Never Rarely, Rarely Sometimes Always a few years ago. Um, so, you know, when you think about performers to watch, maybe in the two Leslie vein of people who you're going to, you know, the movie might get slept on, but will emerge sometime in the future. Um, I would keep an eye out for her. I'm really glad I got to see that one. 
Uh, I don't know that it's that awardsy, although it would be kind of fun if it was. But um, June Squibb has her first ever lead role in a movie at the age of 94 uh, in a movie called Thelma that premiered at Sundance that I really liked. It's a comedy about uh, a woman who is still living independently in her 90s, but gets scammed over the phone by someone pretending to be her grandson, who is played by Fred Hetchinger in the film. Um, And then she goes on this kind of like crime caper quest to track down the people who stole her money and get it back. And so the the film kind of plays with a lot of action movie tropes, um, but it's, you know, offset by the fact that it's June Squibb and Richard Roundtree <laughs> doing these things as these kind of doddering older people. But it's really sweet. And it has a lot of, I think, insightful things to say about, um, you know, the pains of getting older, the sort of loneliness of it, but also some of the pleasures of it. And I think it's a really well-balanced film and June Squibb's really good in it. Um, and that just got b- bought by Magnolia. So we'll see what they do with that. I don't. Again, it's not really awardsy, but it, it was really sweet, and it's the last thing I watched um, for, mm. for Sundance 2024, which was a kind of nice note to end on. From what you wrote, Richard, and what you've said, it seems like it seems a little bit like Academy bait in the sense that, like, who's the last Best Actress comedy no- nominee? I always look at Diane Keaton. Something's got to give. That didn't seem like that's awardsy, true, right? And that's I, true. it just seems like a 94 year old June Squibb is just catnip. She- and she got nominated for a very broadly comic performance in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. This is true. So there is precedent. And apparently Squibb is going to be the lead in, in a movie that Scarlett Johansson's directing. What? So she's really, she's working. Yeah. Is that real? Yeah. Is it really? It's on IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, but like, as in like pre-production. So who the hell knows what that I means. I mean, that's but notable like, enough. Oh. That's pretty cool. But yeah. But it's really, uh, you know, I remember I, one of my first ever interviews for Vanity Fair was I interviewed June Squibb for Nebraska. And um, I went to like 1515 Broadway where, um, you know, the Viacom offices are, mm-hmm. Paramount offices are. And I expected to kind of like very softly make my way through an interview with a kindly old lady. And she mm-hmm. was sharp as a tack, like has tons of career stories because she was like a showgirl in, in, in New York. And like, or I think she was in like some kind of not Ziegfeld Follies. I don't think she's that old, but like something akin to that. Um, and she was like, she was such a pro in this like really fun, like surprising, great way. Um, and uh, so it's really cool to see her 10 years later. Um, land a big lead role like this. I just want to point out that Lily Tomlin got a Golden Globe nomination for Grandma, which I have no idea if this movie is similar in tone to that at all, but that feels like a precedent we should look toward. I remember that. Yeah, I think there are probably four slots left for the Golden Globe comedy (laughs) (laughs) comedy musical actress. Start your engines. Yeah. (laughs) Francis Fisher, you know what to do. Oh, I, I, I forgot to mention, during the Sundance Film Festival, I, w- I went to a ceremony and I was inducted into the HFPA. So I now live in Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations, Richard. We always yeah, congrats. Thank you. Thank you. So we're not going to rejoin our current award season. Um, just to, to catch everybody up about where we are, it's the very beginning of February. The DGA Awards are on Saturday, February 10th. So that's really the next big award show we have coming up. Although that one, it's not televised, right, David? It's just a fun, clubby one in, in person. Correct. And Judd Apatow is returning as host. And your yeah. mileage may vary on Judd Apatow. He's a very good host of this particular show. I've been the last few years. It should be a fun one. And then the nominees luncheon will be on February 12th. So that's when we'll see all the actors and everyone getting back in their full glam. So it's a little bit of a quiet period now as we, God knows, brace for round eight and nine of Barbie discourse or maybe talk about other stuff with the nominations, which is what we really like to do. Um, we have a lot of good listener questions, which felt like a really good way to get into that. Um, as always, you can email us, littlegoldmen at vf.com. Um, I don't know that we're going to include all of the questions we get, but sometimes we have very practical advice about things. So please email us. We'd love to hear from you. Um, so I'm just going to start and get into it from here. I'm going to start with this question from Ben, which is going to my personal favorite category this year, which is Best Actor. He says, this is a question I just can't seem to figure out a good answer to. Why isn't Killian Murphy an obvious frontrunner like Oppenheimer is for Best Picture? It feels like he is the movie. Why hasn't he been swept up in the Oppenheimer love and proving the big frontrunner? Is Nolan stealing the spotlight? Is it RDJ? Is it too internal a performance? I know he still might win, but it feels like he should have it wrapped up with how much support the movie has. I find that a fascinating question that I don't have an answer for. And I'm wondering if one of you guys does. 
I think Ben kind of answered his own question, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote uh, <laughs> Kyle Buchanan. I was talking about this exact thing with Kyle Buchanan from the New York Times uh, at Sundance, and he said, Christopher Nolan is the lead actor of that film. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I see his point, and I think it's, you know, Killian Murphy does a great job, but he kind of is, gets out of the way of the process surrounding the story and, and the other performances, and it's kind of a more recessive thing than is Paul Giamatti, let's say, in The Holdovers. I think that's what's happening. And yes, I think Nolan is is kind of the man-stealing focus from that movie. And obviously Downey Jr. too. And also, I, I just think Killian is great, obviously. He's just not as out there, like, in front campaigning. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Paul Giamatti, I think has both of both of those actors have so much goodwill with the actors in the academy at large but i think when paul was at the globes where he gave his first kind of big acceptance speech and i think it was so charming and warm and that just you know encourages the goodwill from voters and and killian has done that in in kind of a little bit but he's just not he's not as gregarious about it, I guess is the word, but which is not to diminish yeah. what that he's not worthy of the trophy. I just think that he's not quite as out front as I, the rest of the cast or as Giamatti. Yeah, it might be a narrative thing too. I I don't think he has as clear of a, a narrative on his own versus just being giving a really great performance at the center of the front runner. You know, Michelle Yeoh last year, and you know one point worth qualifying here is like, we don't necessarily know that Killian's not a clear front runner. If he wins SAG and BAFTA, then he has been the industry's choice the whole time. But those groups haven't weighed in yet. That's your prediction, though. You've been very firm about that. I have been. And but last year, you know, at this point, it looked like Kate Blanchett was in that same kind of position of, you know, she won Critics' Choice, she and Michelle Yeoh split the Globes. And then the tide started to turn um, when Michelle Yeoh won, like, Spirit and SAG and things like that. So that's kind of where you find out what the industry thinks. Um, But in this case, I think that GMI just has a much stronger narrative. In the same way that I don't know that Cate Blanchett had as clear of a narrative last year, when it is really competitive and you have people trying to decide who to get behind, that can make a difference. I think that's a good, that's a great point with narrative. I always go back to the year I realized the Oscars didn't necessarily award the actual best performer. Was, Ooh, that's always uh, a what tough are you talking moment. About? <laughs> we all have our version of that story. Right? Mine is when Kate Blanchett didn't win uh, for Elizabeth and Gwyneth Paltrow won for Shakespeare in Love. I was like, what? Is this a popularity contest? <laughs> um so that's why There's I, a whole lot to talk about with that year, though, Karen. <laughs> that, I mean, yeah, legally, uh, thematically, yes. Uh, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's why I always sort of bring up, uh, you said it better, David, like narrative versus kind of who gives a great acceptance speech. But I do think there's those little highs and lows and cadences where kind of the warmth or the tide changes a little bit. And they sort of get entwined. Like Paul Giamatti has really risen to the occasion of playing this role of veteran character actor finally getting his moment. Like, that is the guy who is so charming on stage when he's winning these things. And and Killian is, you know, very humbly, sweetly, uh, I would say not intentionally, but just like playing into the perception that many on the internet say have about him, which is that he's a lovely man who prefers to stay home. Uh, <laughs> which, who, you know, who can't relate, honestly, David? Especially on this podcast. Um <laughs> I, I do relate. That said, you know, how far does that take you uh, in an Oscars context? I guess we'll see. Are you calling us indoor kids? <laughs> I'm recording this in my literal closet. I don't know what you're talking about. It's interesting with we have four first time Best Actor nominees this year. Um, last year we had five, which was fun. Um, Bradley Cooper is a repeat nominee. But you, you get the sense sometimes with someone's first nomination. It's like, oh, good. They're finally in the club. They won't win. But it's fine. They, the, the nomination is the reward. And I think... Somehow that's happening more for Killian than with Paul Giamatti or Jeffrey Wright or Coma Domingo to some extent, but I don't think he's had the same kind of lead roles that those other three have had that would have made you think he should have been nominated here before. Right. I think, I mean, Jeffrey Wright hasn't won precursors in the same way, but I feel like it, it seems like with him and Giamatti both, there's like, okay, come on, like it's finally time. Whereas for Murphy, it feels like maybe this is leading toward more in the future. Yeah, I think that's completely right. Yeah. But he, he can per- still win. Yeah. Uh, Killian Murphy like has led movies before obviously but like this is a huge studio american studio movie and you know this was the first time he's done uh, led a movie like that i think and um he kind of proved he could do it he could hold the center the movie made a ton of money 
Um, and yeah, he'll get like big prestige work after this, I think. Or maybe just get to go home, whatever he or wants. <laughs> yeah. um, while we're on the topic of Giamatti and the holdovers, this is uh, not a question, but a fun fact that I wanted to share. Um, this year's nomination, oh, this is from Henry. This year's nomination for the holdovers, uh, it's the first Christmas movie since 1947's Miracle on 34th Street uh, to be nominated for Best Picture. And before that, it was 1946's It's a Wonderful Life. Um, although if Carol had gotten a Best Picture nomination, it would have counted. I just thought I should let everybody know I, that. I have thoughts on Little Women 2019, but... Ooh. Doesn't it span a lot more than just Christmas, though? It does. It does. It Interesting. Does. That's a that's a good counter. I watch it every Christmas. I th- did Aww. Christmas with the Cranks not only win BAFTAs? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to look that up. Jamie Lee Curtis famously won the BAFTA, lost the Oscar, which led right. to the right. Everything Everywhere right. push. Um, okay, let's move on um, from Best Actor to Best Actress. We have uh, two Best Actress questions. I'm... Bless our listeners for being as invested in this as we are. Um, we're going to start with from Aaron. Um, he says, you frequently reference Lily Gladstone's screen time as being a potential issue with her Best Actress campaign. But considering past winners like Nicole Kimmon in The Hours, Frances McDormand in Fargo, Louise Fletcher in Cuckoo's Nest, um, even Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs, is this really an issue? Or is it more about the impact of the role in the story, which I don't think anyone can deny for Gladstone's role in Killers? Um you know, I think we all said that she should have gone in supporting. And when she switched to lead, we were nervous and it seems to have worked out really well. But I do think we talked last week about how it might start to swing backwards. And I, I wonder if the focus on the impact in the story more than the screen time is the move to kind of get around something like that. Or maybe none of this actually matters. What do you guys think? That's a great question, first of all. Not to not to kiss up to the listener questions you already should. in my you first ever podcast. <laughs> uh, but honestly, these are, I mean, anytime you guys do an, a reader question, I just have to say they're, they're really astute. Excellent they're really questions. incredible. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I think some of the performances that were listed in that group hint at the difference, which is to say Anthony Hopkins or Louise Fletcher mm. are giving huge performances that overwhelm the movie in a lot of ways. And and they are more than their screen time, which is to say they kind of, you know, expand beyond the amount of time that you see them say. Um, with Lily Gladstone, it's often a silent performance and she's brilliant in the movie, but I think it's a different effect on the viewer. And I just, I think that the reason that I go back to it is number one that it is not like most of those other examples. I suppose like a Frances McDormand is is a totally fair comparison. And then it's just the matter of who she's up against in this particular year. This was a really strong year for lead actress contenders. And Emma Stone is every bit of poor things. And Sandra Huller is every bit of Anatomy of a Fall. And, and Annette Benning is every bit of Naya. Ev- Don't Annette deny Benning. that. Don't forget Annette. Well, but even in that one, I mean, that really is, um, there's, I think Annette Bening is very much benefited rightly from her chemistry with Jodie Foster in that movie. And they really feel like a a dual nomination. Same for Carrie Um, Mulligan, you could say for Maestro. Yes, yes, exactly. Whereas I think that those two, Emma and Sandra, are really the face of their movies. They control their movies. And so I, I do wonder when you have that level of screen time and when you just have a year in which most of the nominees are from best picture contenders because that didn't used to be a thing in this category at all which is something we've talked about i think it makes a difference and i do think it makes it stand out a little bit more um that she's not the true lead of that movie even if she is one of the principal characters I would just I would just comment really quickly is that I came to Killers really late. Um, I kind of came to this whole set of award season movies really late, and you know where you all were participating kind of in curating uh, the best ofs of the year, and like have been with a lot of these movies longer than I have. All of that preamble to say that. I thought the hype might have been more like overtaking Lily's actual performance. And so I finally saw the movie and was very excited that like her performance is terrific. And I feel like very much a best actress, like leading performance. I was definitely way more, I was surprised because I just thought Leonardo DiCaprio had kind of positioned himself to campaign for her. And so I just thought, okay, what is, what's all the hype doing for this movie? And so when I actually saw it, I was actually really very impressed with, with what she does in that. Yeah. Yeah. And I bet there's plenty of Academy voters who haven't seen the movie yet. And now is their time to catch up on it and may have the exact same reaction. 
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Our next listener question is back to Lily Gladstone also and back into the Best Actress race. And it's a real um, alternate universe scenario, which I think we like to indulge. Um, basically, if Gladstone had gone... This is from Ashley. Sorry, I keep not doing that. Um, listener question from Ashley. If Gladstone had gone supporting, do you think she would be the runaway frontrunner? Or does supporting become a horse race between her and Dave and Joy Randolph? And then also, second part of that question, how do you think the lead actress race changes without Gladstone in it? Um, I want to do the first one first. I love that idea of a scenario. I do think Lily Gladstone would probably be running away with supporting actress somehow. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. Which is to take nothing away from Dave and and Joy Randolph. No, no. It's just like... Well, although the campaigning would have changed, I mean, like, because Dave Vine is such a front runner right now that I feel like that campaign has sort of relaxed a bit. Maybe maybe I'm wrong, but just from my perception, I don't know what's happening in L.A. But um, but yeah, I think that Gladstone, for a variety of reasons, you know, her, her performance uh, has, you know, sort of more social impact, I guess you could say. And in, in that regard, I think it would have been the top choice. And I think Emma Stone would have won Best Actress. It's an interesting question. I'm not so sure. I remember when I first saw The Holdovers, I came out of it and tell you right. And I said, I think that she can win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone called me crazy because at the time we assumed that it was Lily Gladstone. You have to rub that in people's faces as much as you can. Just I will. <laughs> tell them I, I was will. right. Um, well, we don't know if I was right. <laughs> also uh, about because, also about Naya, David. You know, we're gonna have that <laughs> conversation. <laughs> I, I feel bad that Rebecca's not here, but um, yeah. However, I will say that you know I you know what this. <laughs> go down an eye tangent right now but i will say i was i was convinced by the internet to not believe in my own uh my own convictions and uh how dare i do that but anyway uh that's that's quite a tangent um i think that with best actress someone recently pointed out to me uh, a strategist who follows this stuff closely said i i don't think best actress is decided at all and that the the shape of the race is actually a little bit more cluttered than people think because Lily Gladstone was not nominated um, at BAFTA, which indicates she was not in the top three vote getters there. Killers underperformed slightly with the Oscars as well, as we've talked about. And then Emma Stone, of course, wins Critics' Choice. But we don't, I don't think we have a great sense of what the industry has dubbed the frontrunner for this race. And I honestly could see almost everyone in this category, except maybe Carrie Mulligan having a moment. I could see Sandra Huller winning BAFTA. I could definitely see Annette Benning winning SAG, Jessica Chastain style. I mean, it, it does feel like there's a lot of room to play here, uh, which is really exciting. And I think that adds further to the to the listener's question here, which is to say, it is very hard to know where Lily Gladstone is among a very crowded and kind of unique category. Well, that brings us to the second part of the question about about how the address would have changed. Um, she presented a couple of scenarios, and one of them is uh, more people coalescing around Annette Bening earlier, given her status as a long overdue veteran. So, David, not to just make keep making you talk about Nyad. Do you think that if Lily Gladstone had gone supporting, that Annette Bening would not have been such a surprise Best Actress nominee last week? Well, I mean... Kind of by default, no, because that you'd have your top people, four. Yeah. You'd, you'd have your top four here, and if it were Margot Robbie, I suppose maybe people would still consider Annette Benning a surprise in that scenario. That's true, but based on the numbers, she would not have been. I don't know. I, I I agree with Richard. If I were to say who would win with Lily Gladstone out of the equation, it would probably be Emma Stone. I think that the Annette Benning campaign has been challenged in a number of ways particularly by the strike. And then she had a very limited time of promotion when it ended before she had to finish filming uh, a show that's coming out later this spring. And so that narrative just was always kind of up in the air. And then when the the show had finished filming right before voting, she came out, she did a bunch of events. I moderated one of them. Jodie Foster did a belated Telluride tribute because that was supposed to be a big kickoff for her was getting a Telluride medallion. And clearly that, last rush um, worked in her favor and reminded people of her stature, her positioning in the race. 
Uh, the last thing I'll say is something I've said before. She was really the only veteran contending in this category, mm-hmm. and that can make a big difference. And that I don't know that that would change that much with her with Lily in or out, though. That I don't know that that would change the equation much. I'm just I'm on the Nyad train with David. I've loved it since I saw it. I'm I also I did a Q and I did two Q and A's with Annette and then the real Diana and Bonnie and the response to them. And I think strongly for Annette in those rooms. So it was like a SAG audience and an Ampus audience. They're just they're oh, it's really yeah. they are so into her, which they should be. I mean, she's incredible. So I I love the that the campaign is still going strong and and that we can still talk about her. This is a very pro Nyad podcast, Kara. You are you are in a friendly crowd, I promise. Oh, good, okay. <laughs> I also think that like Killers of the Flower Moon is, yes, based on a true story. Lily Gladstone is playing a real person. But Nyad is a capital B biopic in the very traditional Oscar sense. Mm-hmm. And they love those. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, how far are yeah. these voters from that really when Jessica Chastain won just two years ago for yeah. a very down the middle biopic? Mm-hmm. Uh, as usual, we have not gotten to all of our great listener questions. We're really going to keep them coming over the next couple of weeks, I think. But I feel like this is a good one to close it out on. And this comes from Haley. This year, Sandra Huller is the star of two films nominated for Best Picture. That would be Anatomy of a Fall and Zone of Interest, of course. When was the last time an actor was the lead or even was just in multiple Best Picture nominees in the same year? And I think we've already got some good answers for this. Um, yeah. And then maybe we can come up with some more. Richard, you go. It happens more often than you would think. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Hardy had The Revenant and Mad Max Fury Road in the same year. Uh, who else did we? We kind of emailed about this. There were some other folks Issa, recently. Issa Rae this Issa year is in American Fiction and Barbie, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Laura Dern had Marriage Story and Little Women in yep. 2019. That was a big year because that also was the year of Scarlett Johansson for Jojo Rabbit and Marriage Story. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. And Al Pacino in The Irishman and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which, David, mm-hmm. I'm stealing that from you, but you pointed that out. I forgot all about him being in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, too. Plus, Issa's in um, Spider-Verse, right? Right, which mm-hmm. is not Best Picture, but yeah, Best Enemy. She had a she had a good year. We keep talking about that. Why do you think that it is common in this way? And not like for people who are like having a breakout year, like Al Pacino had been around a million years. Is it just a random luck kind of thing? Yeah, scheduling, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Boring. Yeah. Sometimes these things happen in bunches, like... Pacino had not been talked about in that way for a really long time. And then he had a big year. That was the year Laura Dern won an Oscar and had a real moment. You know, it's a different explanation every time, I guess. Issa Rae kind of off of Insecure, pretty in demand. I think that's how you explain that. She probably just didn't have time to be in that many movies, uh, at least big movies um, before. So usually it, it, it can be a, not more random uh, than you'd think, but reflect uh, an actor just kind of finally getting back or getting into a conversation that they weren't in either for a while or ever before. I've got two more that I think prove exactly what you just said. Uh, Janelle Monet in Moonlight and Hidden Figures oh, in 2016. That's a great one. Yeah. That mm-hmm. was fun. Oh, yeah. And then one. the year after that, Timothy Chalamet in Call Me By Your Name and Lady Bird. I mean, that was a true, like, he's here, like, this he's kid's a everywhere. star. I yeah. know. I mean, it yeah. really worked out great for him. Janelle, too, though. I mean, that was her, uh-huh. those were her debuts, I believe. Yeah. Was Jude Law in two Best Picture nominees in 2004, or did he just get accused of being in everything in 2004? Oh, God, right. Yeah. I think it, Richard's assessment is right, though, that so often it's like, you don't know when these movies are going to come out, and then yeah. they come out on top of each other. I feel like Jessica Chastain even had joked about that, that people were tired of seeing her because Oh, Jessica Chastain, sudden... Tree of Life and the Help. Yep. yep. Of yeah. course. That's, she's, yeah. she's, 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 that, that's a very Timothy Chalamet, Jadal Monet year that she had. Yep. <laughs> and Brad Pitt had um, Tree of Life and Moneyball. Right. That same year. Yeah, those two yeah. were really um, yeah. running all over the place in that... Um, not especially great Oscar year of I still think the most impressive double up feat is Steven Soderbergh getting nominated for Best Director for two different movies <laughs> that, were, that were also Best Picture nominees. And, and winning and not splitting his yeah, own and winning phone, one which them. is like, <laughs> yeah. honestly, I would, lo- I would love an oral history of the strategist who made that possible. I rewatched Aaron Brockovich the other night. What a good movie. 
Oh, my God. That is a good movie. Wait, not to circle back to where we started. Richard, did you see his movie at Sundance? I did. Yeah. the the I love his little genre experiments. This one didn't quite work for me on a script level, but the filmmaking technique, because it's from the visual perspective of a ghost um, wandering Which I this love. house. I love that. It's really it, it's it's it, it's a cousin of the David Lowry film, A Ghost Story, in a way. But um, but this one has much more of a you know distinct plot. And I kind of think it never gets the engine fully going on that, unfortunately. But it's also really cool because it's Lucy Liu is one of the leads. And it's really fun to see her Ooh. as the lead in like a cool indie Soderbergh Sundance movie. Do you consider his Magic Mike movies their own genre? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> uh, that's his franchise. I mean, other than yes. Oceans, you know, he has. Yeah, he's got two. You know, um, but uh, I I'm thinking more in the line, vein of Kimmy and Side Effects and Haywire. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when he does an action or a thriller, like pulp, or horror. pulpy thriller kind of things that feel more fun because he made them. Yeah, and he's he's so I just love that he's still experimenting this long into his career. Yeah. Kimmy, God, is Kimmy the best pandemic movie? Like, oh, is yeah, it even a contest? Down. So good. Yeah. yeah, unless you count Asteroid City. I guess that's a different yeah, conversation. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, now that we're really off topic, we can say that's it for this week's Little Gold Men. Uh, we'll be back next week. As I keep saying, we'd love more of your questions. Um, I think this is a good time to dive deep into some uh, below-the-line categories. We had a great listener question about Thelma Schoonmaker. Um, so please send them to us, or we'll come up with our own uh, random Oscar deep dives. That's what we like to do. Um, find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com where you can see a lot of Sundance coverage from um, all of you guys. I just watched movies. I just got to tag along. Um, you can find us on social media at VF Awards Insider. Uh, and you can find me at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylas. And uh, yeah, I have a big Sundance wrap-up post kind of running down yes. a lot of the titles. So go read that, please. Uh, David. David Canfield, 97. And Kara, this is the part where uh, you can tell people to follow you on social media or not. It's up to you. That is so kind. Uh, it's just on Instagram, Kara J. Warner. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best impression of Richard when in line for a Sundance party and someone else gets in in front of him goes to Kara Warner. Is this a popularity contest? The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right> nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>